Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Last month, the journalist and Pope Francis biographer Austin Ivory sent a detailed list of questions to the Holy Father about the COVID-19 pandemic. Austin figured he wouldn't hear back. Pope Francis is a busy guy with a lot on his plate, but luckily for us, Austin was 100% wrong about that. Not only did Pope Francis respond, but he sent a long, extremely thoughtful audio recording. His responses make up perhaps the most in-depth interview the Holy Father has ever directed toward the English-speaking world. Austin Ivory is my guest today on the show. We talked about the interview's backstory, like how does someone make this happen exactly? We also discussed the Holy Father's most striking answers, plus how Pope Francis's response to the pandemic has reflected the central values that have characterized his pontificate since the beginning. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you listen to podcasts, and we always appreciate kind reviews on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. Austin Ivory, welcome to AMDG. Thank you for taking some time uh, to talk about Pope Francis and the the pandemic. First of all, uh, how are you doing? How are you holding up in the middle of all this? Thanks, Mike. It's great to be with you. I'm fine. I live um, in England, uh, close to the Welsh border, uh, on a small farm, and there's a lot to do outside. We just got some chickens today, for example. So you know, there's always stuff to do. So I'm 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 having a good lockdown <laughs> in many ways. I feel very privileged, uh, and uh, yeah, just in in a way, relishing the chance to 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 be more contemplative, actually. And until a certain papal interview happened recently, um, you know, life was very quiet. Then suddenly it got very exciting for a few days, and so now it's back to quiet again. Sure. Well, I do want to talk about that interview. That's why I asked you on. So the Wednesday of Holy Week, I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see from Commonweal magazine that there's a new interview with Pope Francis addressed to the English speaking world. I click the link and see your your name there and and read through it. So first, maybe take us through the backstory. Uh, How did this interview come about? Sure. Well, um, Mike, as you know, I've, I've written a couple of books on Pope Francis. First of all, a biography that came out in 2014 called The Great Reformer. And last year, a book on the pontificate called Wounded Shepherd. And as a result of that, you know, I've got to know um, Francis uh, enough that I can, I feel I can just very occasionally write to him. And something made me on about the 20th of March, just want to reach out to him. It was it was really very, um, something very instinctive, uh, a providential one might say. But at, at that time, um, the virus was just coming, really beginning to hit the English speaking world. He had given a couple of fairly brief uh, interviews to Spanish and Italian media. And I just wrote to him and I said, you know, it would be wonderful if he could address himself at this time to the English speaking world in particular. And I suggested um, an interview uh, which could be published in a Catholic publication in the English speaking world in which he could speak quite directly to the people of God. And actually at this time, and this was a few day, quite a few days before his Urbi et Orbi in St. Peter's Square on March the 27th, um, you know, he hadn't actually said that much about how he saw, uh, he hadn't shared much of his discernment uh, about the grace of conversion on offer at this time, how God was leading us through this and what the Holy Spirit was calling us to. It was really that that I was asking him for. Then he gave his um, his, his Urbi et Orbi. Now, he had written back to me to yeah, say, look, 
send me the questions, but I don't think I should be doing interviews at this time. And I said, that's fine. I wrote to him after the Irby at Orby and sort of kind of went, well, <laughs> I think you've done it really. You've given us the guidance, you know. Um, and uh, But then I got a lovely message back from him saying, look, you know, uh, leave your questions with me. Uh, I'm just struggling at the moment with various things. Anyway, I thought that was the end of it. And then um, a few days later, I got a call from his uh, chairman pre-secretary who just said, is it okay if the Holy Father records the answers to your questions. So I had no idea what was coming, Mike, and I, it was a Saturday afternoon. I think the audio arrived, you know, by email. And um, it was a 45-minute profound, incredibly profound reflection uh, on the crisis. And I think the fruit of a deep discernment of his coming from the depths of his heart, and many people say probably the most important and wide-ranging interview he's done, really, since the famous Badaro uh, interview in 2013. So he record he recorded answers. Did he? Yes. It feels like it was was written uh, or very again a lot of time of thought. So did did he write it and then read it? How did like how did it come across? Isn't just an audio file? I, I yes, it came across just as an audio file. And I said to him, uh, rather than ask him six questions, I I gave him six themes, uh, which mm-hmm. were all as- different aspects of the crisis. And within each theme, I put a whole load of questions, you know, two or three, sometimes four questions that he could answer or not as he saw fit. So really, it was a I was inviting him to do a reflection. So he was answering uh, the questions, or rather, he was answering the themes that I had put to him, really giving me his reflection. So it was all in Spanish. Um, I then uh, transcribed uh, and edited and translated it. Uh, and it, of course, it came out also in the original Spanish and was also translated into Italian. I had a little bit of help with the transcription from a Spanish uh, journalist colleague. Um, but yeah, basically, it was my job to edit it really into a form where it was uh, much more of a question and answer. So the questions that you see in the interview are not exactly the questions. That's why I say in, in the interview, you know, I then asked him about this area because they're not really questions as such. Sure. So as you're listening to that for the first time, what other do you remember there being some moments that really just really made you kind of stop and want to replay and listen and things that really just grabbed your attention? Well, the first thing uh, that I felt listening to it was because uh, you know, I said I had no idea how long it would be. I knew it was coming, but I you know assumed it might be about 10 minutes or something. Uh, and I remember just you know, thinking, wow, the first question was amazing. Second question. And then the third was and I was looking at my watch thinking, wow, this is really going deep. So that was the first thing. I realized that this was coming from somewhere very deep. I suppose the second thing is that there were parts of when you listen to the audio where he's uh, speaking from notes. So he'd put a lot of thought into it and he'd obviously written some thoughts down. But then there were other moments when his voice slowed right down and I could tell he was being carried, I suppose, you know, uh, we would say by the spirit um, that this really was, he was very present to what he he was saying, that it was coming from somewhere very deep. Now, that moment of the interview, which I think in many ways is the heart of it, is in response to my question about conversion. So it's the, it's the, it's the fourth question where I ask about um, the crisis as containing the possibility or the potential for an ecological conversion and a change in our way of being and in our lifestyles. And that prompts from him this really quite extraordinary meditation about memory and about the importance of remembering. And he mentions the first week of the exercises. And he says, you know, let's not throw this away. Let's not turn this into an anecdote. You know, let's, uh, uh, let's remember fruitfully. And then talks about 
this is the moment to see the poor. And and he says in, in in the recording, he says, you know, I really want to to quiero detenerme en este punto. He said in Spanish, I only want to stay with this point. I want to dwell on this point. And he talked about this is the moment to see the poor. Yeah, and this for Francis, of course, is a very rich um, vein for him. You know, Christ present in the flesh of the poor. But he says, yeah, we we have just overlooked the poor. We just don't see them. Now we must see them. This is the moment to see them. So I think this is, I think the, the moment where he is really identifying the grace of the conversion uh, that is open to us at this time. And and he's kind of uh, seeing this as a great opportunity, but also a certain fear that we're going to throw away the chance of that conversion. It felt like a spiritual director, you know, uh, telling you in the first week, you know, be attentive to this. Of course, that echoes a, a big theme for Francis when he talks about the throwaway culture and then kind of a response to that is the, the, to build a culture of encounter where we get to know people who are living on the margins, people dealing with poverty so that like if they become our friends, then you don't throw a, a friend away, right? Kind of a key theme for him since the beginning. Um, but how do we how do we do that? Do you have a sense? He, again, seems to be struggling too with this idea that we it's hard for us to to go out and to actually physically encounter now uh, because we're kind of staying, you know, staying at home. Did you have a sense for him of like what he meant when like to really, how do we really see the poor and, and remember them in this uh, when we're so kind of physically distanced? Well, the example he gives actually in the interview where he says that the poor are a reality that we can't deny, but they're hidden because poverty, he says, is bashful. That was my translation, pudoroso in Spanish, kind of, you know, wanting to hide, wanting to conceal. Poverty tries to conceal itself because of shame. Uh, but suddenly in the midst of this quarantine, yeah, we're seeing, I mean, maybe not physically with our eyes, but of course we're hearing stories. We're, 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 we're seeing on the news stories. I mean, in the United States, uh, I've just been hearing about people who can't afford to pay their water bills and they're having their water cut off. Uh, the example the Pope gives is in one in Rome where uh, a policeman says to a homeless man, you know, you can't be on the street, you've got to go home. And he says, I've got no home to go to. So it's this kind of, it's, I suppose, the apocalyptic element of this pandemic is the, the revealing, what it is revealing, um, which is normally hidden or we have chosen to hide um, in our busyness, in our distractedness, in our selfishness, we no longer can. So th I think this is, this is what he means by seeing the poor. It is time to acknowledge, recognize, um, put at the center that which we have ignored. And we've seen that playing out, at least you know, here in the United States, as unemployment numbers have shot up, that we see that uh, there's a racial justice element to the pandemic, that especially the black community being affected at a far higher rate, kind of disproportionate rate of people who are, again, are unable to work from home, people who have to kind of venture outward the way our, our uh, employment-centered healthcare system is kind of leaving a lot of people out. So I think there are some of those things, those inequalities that are kind of baked into our system, at least here in the United States, that are now, again, being kind of revealed that maybe the uh, – I saw some someone tweet that um, the virus doesn't discriminate, but our uh, our systems do, and we're seeing that. Uh, happening the way the way it's playing out now, uh, and again, that was also a theme he echoed in the the Irby at Orby address when he's talking about we have had all of these things, all these inequalities, and we've kind of ignored them, thinking that we'll all be okay, and now um, we've realized that's not true. That's and right. That was yeah, all kind it, of 
he has that wonderful phrase about yeah we we try we tried to stay healthy in a world that was sick and and now the sickness has arrived you know on our shore we can't escape it i think i think that's the point we're thrown in this now altogether we're all vulnerable you know death stalks us all um equally but as you say it affects some groups disproportionately you mentioned the the the, the racial dimension of this um the, the, the fact that i mean social distancing is impossible to do in a slum um we the pope himself talked in the in the interview about the elderly the isolation of the elderly because the elderly now have to self isolate but you know, here in the uk for example uh, the virus is absolutely tearing through, as it did in Spain and Italy, elderly care homes, where you know, a third of all deaths in the last you know, two weeks are from the virus, where the care workers you know, aren't properly protected. And these aren't even statistics that are recorded in our in our official coronavirus statistics. So again, you know, it, it's, it's like well, there are whole groups here that have been uh, can't say ignored, but you know, definitely margin uh, on the margins who are being disproportionately affected, which is in itself then uh, causing us to look again at what's important. And the Pope talks about, again, in answer to the same question about conversion, um, he says, go down into the underground, pass from the hyper-virtual fleshless world to the suffering flesh of the poor. This is the conversion we have to undergo. And if we don't start there, there will be no conversion. So the conversion has to start... With, with, the, with the encounter, the concrete encounter, with the fleshness of, of the poor and Christ in the poor. But then he goes on to say, I'm thinking at this time of the saints who live next door, the, na- the next door saints, one of his great themes. They are heroes, he says, doctors, volunteers, religious sisters, priests, shop workers, all performing their duty so that society continue functioning. And then he talks about the people who have died. And he ends the whole section saying, this is the miracle that, that the Lord is performing at the moment. The Holy Spirit is working here to say, these are the paths which we must follow. These are the heroes. These are the models. You know, it is not the celebrities. It is not the um, the powerful politicians, important, of course, as they are at this time. Yeah, the people who are holding us all together are the people who serve uh, in a self-sacrificial way. And that's the path that's being lit up for us. He talked about uh, too, telling this, sharing the story of a bishop who had called and was concerned that he maybe shouldn't be kind of going through a healthcare facilities granting absolution uh, to folks. Uh, and then, kind of Francis seemed to say, like, if canon law is not serving us in this time, then it's not the most uh, important thing. I don't want to put words in his mouth about the importance of, of canon law, but he essentially said, like, you know, do what you you need to do, do what do what's right. And so, it really seems to be kind of on the side of making sure. Um, that we are again are present. That uh, faith leaders are, are present and offering pastoral care uh, in in this time. That might not again like there might not be like a scripted playbook in, in canon law for how we're supposed to go about this. But said like in those moments, uh, the the care and the closeness are what's most important. Yeah, I mean, so, so you know, he's very careful not to get into you know, the weeds of what particular yeah, priest must do in particular circumstances because. As Pope, he's sensitive to, first of all, national regulations uh, are going to be different in each country, but also bishops' own guidelines are going to be different. But he does lay down some clear markers. And the marker that he lays down is that the fact that we must avoid spreading the virus, the fact that we must avoid gathering in groups, uh, the fact that we must uh, self-isolate, should should not be used as an excuse to stop us being what we're called to be, which is ministers of 
Christ's love and mercy yeah, to a hurting world. And so you know, particularly pastors, he says, you know, we must find creative new ways of coming alongside people. So he, creativity is a word that appears, I think, seven or eight times in the interview. He, he He's very insistent on this. This is the gift, again, the gift of the moment is, yeah, okay, we can't go from A to B in the normal way. That doesn't mean we stop trying to go to B, but we have to find a different way. Uh, be, be creative. And the example he gives of the bishop that you mentioned, I mean, the bishop yeah, wants to give absolution to people dying of coronavirus in hospitals, can't go in to the COVID-19 ward, wants to give absolution from the hospital corridor. Canon lawyer, canon law says you can't because there has to be direct personal contact. Goes to the Pope. The Pope says, do your priestly duty. You know, again, he's not saying do this or do that. He's saying, but start with your duty. What is your duty? Your duty is to bring, uh, you know, God's mercy. And, and then he says, Laughingly, you know, I then heard that the, <laughs> the bishop was giving absolution, uh, you know, uh, uh, all around the place. So his 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 point is, you know, don't let law become an excuse for you not to do what actually canon law itself demands that you do, which is uh, the supreme law of canon law, which is the salvation of souls. I do want to talk about that word creativity uh, for a moment. Again, as you said, it comes up uh, a number of times and he mentioned it in the Urbi et Orbi. I think he even like kind of went off his notes, the Urbi et Orbi to like really to emphasize it again, kind of looked up and, and said, we need this, this creativity. Uh, what for you in, in the Francis context does that, that word mean? Like what, what is he thinking about when he's talking about uh, creativity? Uh, the Holy Spirit, because he's, his conviction is that the spirit is constantly creating and recreating. And of course, there's an important moment in the interview when I rather clumsily suggest that we're learning at the moment to be more people of God and less institution as a result of the crisis. And he he's not buying that. Yeah, there's no dichotomy between institution here you know, and spirit, but rather he says the Holy Spirit institutionalizes the church. So it's the Holy Church, the Holy Spirit that creates the institution. And also um, is, is uncreating as well. You know, we're calling on us to get rid of things. So being creative means to try new things, to open up new spaces, to, um, to take advantage of circumstances. Because traditional paths have been closed, it's about opening up new paths. It's also about letting go of certain things which, which prevent you doing that and taking on other things. But it's not a, it's not a sort of abandonment of tradition or – and, in fact, interestingly, um, my, the mass actually that, um, that Francis said this morning, his homily uh, uh, um, today, he talked about the, the dangers actually of a Gnostic church. You know, we could all end up with a sort of virtual church. No, no, the church, we will go back to being together. We will go back to celebrating the Eucharist as a people of God around the table, physically present because, you know, but in the meantime, we are learning to be creative and we need to learn to be creative. And of course, you know, this is my reflection now, not his, but you know, has the church actually really made use of some of the great technologies and media that are available to us yeah, to communicate, to to bring God's word, to bring God's consolation? You know, and, and I certainly know anecdotally, as I'm sure you do, many priests who for the first time are, are, are learning to use, you know, Zoom and, and Skype and, you know, Google Hangout and, and are actually having, coming back with some great stories. Uh, one priest was uh, telling me the other day, you know, he, he had sort of many, many more people tuning into his, you know, virtual Easter mass than he would normally have physically present and reaching all kinds of people who wouldn't normally be tuning in. So that, that's, I think that's what the poem means by creative. Be open to those new things without, of course, abandoning the essence of, of, our, of our tradition. 
uh, one of the sections you mentioned again the about attachment to institution or not was one that really fascinated me. Uh, he talked about needing to kind of live in this tension between disorder and harmony. That we have all of these charisms in the church. You know, it's a here comes everybody type of church over a, a billion people. A lot of different things, a lot of different ways of approaching it, and, and then that's good. But then also kind of uh, united in harmony to sit in that tension. I think that's a real challenge because it's not, um, tension is not comfortable, right? Um, but that, that section, the way he could take that with that such balance really uh, impressed me. You're not the first to, to say that in many ways, the most, I suppose, startling part of the interview, theologically, ecclesiologically, is precisely what he says here, a tension between disorder and harmony. This is the church that must come out of the crisis. We have to learn to live in a church that exists in the tension between harmony and disorder provoked by the Holy Spirit. Very Bergoglio, this, the idea of a, of a polarity, a, t- a tense polarity, uh, you know, that we, we live in that polarity and it's the Holy Spirit that reconciles these things which are actually very hard for us humanly to bring together. But with, if we are able to hold, the, hold them creatively in tension, the Holy Spirit is forging something new out of that. So a, a really important idea for him. He uses then in that moment the the Acts of the Apostles as this kind of like, like the best example of a theological book to look at. Uh, and I've kind of felt in some ways like going back to our roots, like we were celebrating Easter, you know, on a Zoom mass with a Jesuit friend of ours uh, and a bunch of other families. Like we're not in, in public. We are kind of we're facing uncertainty. We're a little bit uh, afraid. We're kind of kept to our homes, not sure what's going to happen, and then trying to find our way through that. Maybe in some ways a connection uh, with the early church. But for him, again, it seems like Acts of the Apostles is like a, a good text to, to go to, which is you know appropriate in this Easter season when we have it uh, in liturgy. So I think the virus in many ways is, uh, the, the crisis of the virus, I should say, is accentuating the tendency that was already very much present in our world, which he long ago identified, he and the Latin American church long ago identified, um, you know, as as uh, whatever one wants to call it, liquidity or fragmentation or uh, the loss of hold of institutions, you know, that the Catholic faith is no longer transmitted uh, increasingly through Catholic institutions. We no longer have the support of law and culture. Uh, you know, we're living in a post-Christendom era. And that therefore, this is an era much more like, as you say, much more like the early church. And maybe this experience of the coronavirus lockdown is is indeed bringing us much more into the sort of the, the, the catacomb world. So, so that, I mean, his discernment, um, and I've written a lot about this, it's in very much in, in, in Wounded Shepherd. I have a whole chapter on it, really, which is the discernment of a parasita is that you know, the church uh, has to learn to offer the testimony, the, the experience of Christ, not as a, an idea or an ethical system, but as an, as an encounter with the mercy of Christ. That is the primary encounter from which then everything else follows. That's where the church begins. And, and so um, that really has been the heart of the reforms of his pontificate have been to help the, to help the church, um, to reform the church so that it can better do that, that it can better perform the mercy of Christ and offer that experience. And I think he sees this as as an acceleration uh, or a deepening of that same tendency, which is the result of, of globalization. Hey everyone, we'll get back to my conversation with Austin Ivory in just a minute. I wanted to let you know about something new we're honored to have up at our website, jesuits.org prayer. 
Over the past few weeks, you might have seen the prayer for a pandemic going around. It starts like this. May we who are merely inconvenienced remember those whose lives are at stake. It's powerful and challenging. The chaplain of the House of Representatives, Father Pat Conroy SJ, used it to open a session of Congress. One problem was, though, that as the prayer made its way around the internet, it was often misattributed or not attributed to anyone at all. Its author is Cameron Bellum, a Seattle-based author of prayers and essays. Cameron has written a brand new prayer for our website, and I'll share it with you now. It's called Grief and Gratitude. Grief and gratitude are the lodestones of our days. Each pulls relentlessly at the other. We grieve that we cannot see our loved ones with gratitude that they are still alive. We pour out our laments, foreheads to the floor, all the while grateful that we have a floor beneath us. We grieve our children's lost school days while a dark and bitter gratitude approaches on the horizon. There will be no school shootings. We shoulder two stones, one of grief-stricken gratitude, the other of grateful grief. We stagger under the weight of them. To whom can we offer these muddled, tear-soaked prayers? To the one who holds both the sorrowful and the joyful mysteries in his hands. Lord most merciful, Lord most compassionate, let us rest at last in your arms. Amen. You can get a printable version of this prayer and learn more about Cameron and the prayer for a pandemic at jesuits.org prayer. Okay, now back to the interview. One of the things about the interview that really struck me, the, the number of allusions uh, to different texts, things like, again, that he's clearly been praying with. Uh, Virgil mentioned uh, a few times, again, you asked him about one of his, his favorite books, clearly seems to be like kind of um, living you know, in a space where he, he's drawing on such a wide variety of sources uh, in his own reflection. Is that something that he just is always like that? If you're talking with him, he'll be pulling in quotes from, from different places that have really kind of shaped him? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think um, he has certain canonical texts which he he always reverts to. I mean, Antonio Spadaro, Father Antonio, when he when he saw the interview, he famously said, "It's a wonderful, wonderful interview." So because he, he's quoting exactly the same text as he quoted back in 2013, Alessandro Manzoni's The Betrothed, Virgil's Enid, um, uh, Dostoevsky. I mean, these are for Francis the kind of the canonical texts. Um, but it is typical of him to pull out uh, a quote. Uh, I mean, he has an extraordinary memory anyway. Um, but he, uh, during the interview, I think there were three or even four quotes from Virgil in Latin, uh, which he mostly got right. I mean, clever proofread was picked up, <laughs> but I, they, they were way beyond me. But yeah, no, he 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 has that uh, that depth of learning and and that fac that faculty to. And I think all the quotes, particularly from uh, from Virgil, are, are incredibly apt, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're really spot on, and they literally do. I think they occur to him in the moment as he's as he's speaking. And the other the other text he, he quotes uh, towards the end is Joel uh, chapter three, 
uh, right at the beginning there, chapter three, where he talks about the dreams of the young, the prophecy of the young and the dreams of the old meeting. Um, this for him is, a, again, a canonical, a key text. Yeah, he has this intuition. He's told, he told me when we met in 2018 that he, he has this intuition that the young and the old need to connect. And that's why in St. Peter's Square, in the days when St. <laughs> Peter's Square was full, um, he always went straight to the young and straight to the old, almost with this, with this intuition that the two had to be connected, that when the two meet, um, something very fertile and powerful is being born. And we've heard that theme from him too over and over again, mentioning those those communities uh, in particular, and talked again about his own connection with. This is not something that is um, you know just intellectual for him. He talked about, I guess, uh, as a bishop going and visiting with uh, seniors in in care centers and finding out that their family is not there, that there is this disconnect. We've kind of we often leave the, these communities to the side, maybe because they don't really contribute much uh, to a market economy. But again, always kind of highlights those who, who might be uh, on the margins and again, ends the interview uh, that way. Yeah, he does. And that's specifically in answer to my question about any messages he has for the elderly who are self-isolating, for confined young people. Um, and for those facing uh, poverty, and he answers yeah, all three really. That, but particularly with the elderly and the young, he has this lovely idea that the elderly are the roots um, that the young need. That the, the the young person he says is buds and foliage, but without roots they can't bear bear fruit. So the elderly are the roots, um, and and I think that's there's a sense I think with. In his discernment about, and this is again true of his view of modernity, not just uh, the result of the coronavirus crisis, that there is this kind of profound breakdown happening as a result of technology, globalization, mobility, breakdown of institution, fraying of the bonds of belonging, the dissolution of those of, of those social and community bonds, and that in this context, that there has to be a, 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 these um, these institutions the core institutions, if you like, of our society that make life worth living, that allow human beings to know that they are unconditionally loved, that allow us, that give us our sense of belonging and identity, that these have to be reforged, refounded, recreated, and that that's what's happening when the young and the old, uh, the prophecies of the young meet the dreams of the old. Then we have, we have these roots being reborn. Society essentially is being reborn. Well, as, as you've said, it's just such a, a rich uh, conversation. Well, uh, interview through through time and space. And uh, we will, again, make sure we link to that. I imagine most of our listeners have seen it. Uh, but just so much there to, to ponder with, to pray with, uh, kind of in the middle of this time. I also wanted to, to ask you uh, about something else you, you wrote about, uh, the Urbi at Orbi address uh, from uh, March 27th. When, again, that's those striking images I don't think I'll ever forget of uh, Francis alone in, in St. Peter's Square. Uh, in your article for Commonweal about that, your your first sentence uh, is about like, in yeah, perhaps you're right, it was perhaps the most liturgically dramatic moment in the long history of the papacy. Uh, bring us back to that moment. Why why did it strike you as maybe the most liturgically dramatic? Yes, I mean, th- things a Catholic journalist should never write. You know, it is the most X in the long history of the papacy because I'm sure right. there have been other liturgically dramatic moments, but certainly... I can't remember, and I'm sure very few of other people listening can remember a moment that was just so poignant um, when he when he, he he's alone. The, the square is dark. You know, it's raining. 
everything is empty. And the and he himself, of course, is, re- is recovering from from bronchitis. Uh, he's ca- struggling to catch his breath. Um, and just the way he began so dramatically capturing uh, the whole atmosphere. I, yeah, I, I think I think you know it was very interesting to see that even those people. Uh, of which there are not a few in the United States, particularly, you know, his critics were silenced by that. They were impressed. Yeah, they, I think everybody was aware this is this is the moment where you know, the successor of Saint Peter is leading God's faithful people uh, through this dark night. I think so. So yeah, I, I, I think he has this capacity. I mean, Saint Peter Square, you know, the, one might say the Vatican, everything is designed for dramatic liturgy. But I think he really managed to use the, the theatricality of that moment um, really to communicate some very, very deep uh, thoughts. And then, of course, his, his meditation on the homily with Jesus asleep in the boat. Uh, yeah, which is really about trusting God's purpose uh, through it all. But I, I couldn't help thinking, because he was talking about a storm and a boat, <clears throat> that the uh, the word that the Argentine Jesuits used of Jorge Mario Bergoglio in the 1970s was storm pilot. You know, that's how they described it. Yeah, he was a natural storm pilot. And, and I think that's what he was doing there in that square that night. Any other um, moments or, or quotes or images that will stick with you from from that address? Um, I think um, uh, I, I think it's when he when he says um, uh, when he says this is a time of for choosing. Uh, I think this is that seems to, that stayed with me of all the things I think he said in that uh, in that extraordinary address. It was this idea that, that, again, it's the apocalyptic element of this crisis, the unveiling of who we really are and the real choices that we face. You know, it's almost like uh, we can carry on, uh, you know, with crises, but yeah, everything basically carries on, doesn't it, more or less as normal. We don't have to face these extraordinary choices. Now we do. Um, and, you know, that, that, it, that it is the life of the spirit at moments of crisis and tribulation that reveals itself as the true life force of the world, yeah, that, that we are really sustained by the doctors, the nurses, the supermarkets, shelf stackers and so on yet and that this this is how things really are um and and that's the call to change i think is right there i think in many ways his interview with me was putting flesh on this the core idea in uh in that obi et obi and you know i I think this is all about conversion i mean the subtitle of my book wounded shepherd is pope francis and his struggle to convert the catholic church because Actually, reform, which is a word used a lot of Francis, I think fails to capture the true dimension of what he, of his leadership, which is really that of an Ignatian spiritual director leading us through the exercises. And I think this is this is what you see with him at the moment. This is all about conversion. And what he's doing is, like a good spiritual director, identifying the obstacles and the temptations which prevent us opening to the grace of the conversion which is on offer at this time. Uh, and, and, and I think that's what he was doing in that Erby at Orby. And really what I think he's doing throughout um, this, this crisis. Very interestingly, by the way, I think he gave some very important spiritual advice for us uh, at home. You know, we're not, st- I'm not stacking supermarket shelves. I'm not serving in a COVID ward. You know, most of us are, are at home looking after our children or, or working if we still have work. And, and you know, what is what are we called to do? And I think Francis is saying to us again, very much like a spiritual director, don't lose the opportunity of this moment. Don't take refuge in escapism. 
you know, sure, by all means, watch watch a Netflix series. But if you're watching Netflix to avoid the pain of the news, then something's wrong there. Equally, you know, don't uh, avoid the temptation of, of of desolation, of turning inwards, of into despair. Act against agere contra, you know, those tendencies. So very interesting. You know, he began the interview by saying, talking about the actions that he is taking. Uh, at this time, he's praying more. He's praying specifically for people, and he's a, he's seeking to attend to their needs in different ways. Live stream daily mass, uh, stepping up the activities of the office uh, of papal charities, and I think very interestingly, he says he's planning for the post uh, pandemic period, which he says is going to be very painful. You know, these are all concrete actions for the sake of uh, of people which uh, in a way he, he's modeling for us our own response, isn't he, to the crisis. You know, this is in a way the invitation to us all. Let's not lose the opportunity to build a new future out of this present um, uh, by, by fruitful remembrance and concrete action. Right. And concrete actions, another such a huge theme for him kind of across all his writings and his witness uh, just that we can't just kind of talk of love in the abstract, but is made up of those kind of everyday concrete actions. And again, in every context, he's, you know, he's talked about that. And again, when I'm reading your interview, listening to the Urbi at Orbi, that's for me, what I keep coming back to is that if, if someone hadn't really been following Francis and then connected with those things, you would see like, again, the Francis project, like the DNA of it kind of shot through. And that's one thing to me, I think he can speak with, you know, kind of authority at this time, because it's not like, this is not new stuff for him, that he's been modeling it, he's been teaching it, these consistent themes. And so it's kind of rooted in uh, his core values. So have you been seeing that? Like, again, as someone who has maybe studied uh, Pope Francis um, more than anyone else, uh, that his response to the pandemic has really reflected this kind of the greater Francis project and what he really values. I think <clears throat> I think you've put it really well, I, and I'd say exactly that. I think, so I think what, what coronavirus has done has been to crystallize the, the choice is also facing the church at this time. Um, just to go back to what I was saying earlier, the fruit of the discernment of a parasita when the Latin American bishops gathered in 2007 in Brazil, and they, I think, carried out the most thorough signs of the times discernment of the church of any part of the world. And what they identified was you know, the need now uh, to, to, to offer the witness and the encounter with Christ. And to be, and these aren't the words of a parasita, but they're some of, Francis's favorite, two favorite adjectives, uh, which I take uh, as, as the title of one of my chapters, close and concrete. Vicinanza concretezza. He's always talking in Italian, cercania e concretezza in Spanish. And of course, those are the two incarnation words, aren't they? You know, um, it, it's the Holy Trinity looking down in, in, in the second week, seeing suffering humanity and responding not with a lecture or, or a book uh, or a film or a movie, but rather sending his son. And the incarnation is close and concrete. It's it's God coming close to us in a very concrete way in the form in a, in a culture uh, as a human being with with language, with family, with a name, and so on. Uh, and so that um, that is how God is always manifesting. That is how God is saving us. And that the church therefore has to learn to be close and concrete um, in a world. Of liquidity, you know, in a world in which uh, there's an ever greater tendency to a kind of Gnosticism, to fleeing into the abstract, the the the, the problem. I mean, technology is a gift, but the problem with technology is that it, it creates the illusion that we can do things, for, you know, faster and more powerfully. That we that there's an impatience with limits, with imperfection, which is 
implicit in the technocratic paradigm. So faced with all these things that are happening in our culture and in our world as, as a result of globalization and, and, and technology, the church has to go the other way, has to be, be close and concrete, to be intimate, to be, uh, yeah, to be incarnate. I mean, these are, and this is, of course, the great theme of Querida Amazonia, his, his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, which is really only a few, a few weeks ago. It seems like an eternity ago, <laughs> a few weeks ago, where, of course, this is, this is all about uh, his constant theme there was inculturation, and he links there inculturation, incarnation, really the same thing. So how does the church incarnate the gospel in a, a liquid, technocratic, globalized world which is increasingly fragmented? And the answer is vicinanza e concretezza. And I think the, 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 the virus, in a way, again, is polarizing that choice. You know, how do we? How are we close and concrete in a context of self-isolation? You know, uh, in which we can't gather. Well, it dramatizes in a way the real choices in, in a way that perhaps we haven't seen before. So, one of the collection of communities that really I think works to concretize the love of God and bring the mercy and love of God to the world are the, the popular movements. Not a phrase we use in the United States all that much, but I guess largely thinking about um, kind of faith-based. Uh, folks who are in communities working for for social justice, kind of uh, addressing uh, systemic uh, issues in all, in all kinds of forms. Um, so on, on Easter Sunday, Pope Francis released a letter to uh, those movements around the world, uh, which, among other things, called maybe for a, at least a universal basic wage, encouraged people who are working not just in philanthropy or to meet immediate needs, but also those who are working to change systems. What, what about that letter uh, from Easter stood out to you? I, I thought it was remarkable. I mean, just by way of context here, Francis has had this extraordinary uh, I think we have to call it leadership of this, as you say, concept, which really in English we have we struggle with understanding it. But it's really uh, the tradition in the United States of community organizing, I think, comes as close to it. That's to say uh, the organizing of people on the margins, uh, people who have difficulty accessing jobs and housing, who are often in insecure work. And Francis's concern for these groups is, is, is much more than simply a concern for their welfare. He sees them as protagonists of a new future. And this, again, has to do with his discernment of, of, of technocracy and globalization. And, the, and the, uh, so he sees that these people, you know, the, 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 the garbage pickers, the ununionized workers, the small farmers, are the people who are the artisans of the future. So in this Easter letter, he, he reaches out, to them in the context of, of COVID-19 and describes them as a kind of invisible army, an army whose only weapons are solidarity, hope, and community spirit, all revitalizing at a time when no one can save themselves alone. So there's this idea that, you know, our traditional mechanisms of salvation have failed us. The market uh, and the state, I mean, of course, both necessary, but we are experiencing, are we not in this crisis, the limits of both market and state. And it's at this time that we find ourselves looking at groups of people like this who bring to the table what? Of course, they know how to till the land, or but that's not really what they bring to What they really bring to the table is their capacity for fraternity, for solidarity, for hope, for working together in spite of the poverty of means. Now here, Francis says, yeah, here the Holy Spirit is working, here Christ is, here is where we are called to learn. And he's so anyway, he, he reaches out to them, he sympathizes with them, he understands them, all that stuff. But 
To me, the key kind of sentence in there is, my hope is that governments understand, he says, that technocratic paradigms, whether state-centered or market-driven, are not enough to address this crisis or the other great problems affecting humankind. Now more than ever, persons, communities, and peoples must be put at the center, united to heal, to care, and to share. So to go back to, to our interview, where he's talking about who are the people that are saving us at this time, it's the people who are serving, the poor, yeah, the poor people and so on, uh, who, 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 who we don't normally pay attention to, but who are serving. To, they are showing us um, how we can create a new future because because their selfless service, often at great risk to their own lives, um, it has the capacity to create a new future in a way that our state and our market just don't. So he's really saying we need to adjust to this reality. He's hoping that in the future, the post-coronavirus future that emerges from this, we have economic policies, social policies, government policies, which better prioritise yeah, if you like, concrete human and community needs uh, rather than uh, organizing uh, everything uh, at the behest of the functioning of, of the market or uh, for the sake of a kind of functionalist uh, a, a bureaucracy. Uh, and it's very interesting that he, you know, he says, I hope this time of danger will free us from operating on automatic pilot, shake our sleepy consciences and allow a humanist, I don't really like, I think that's a bad translation, but anyway, a humane and ecological conversion that puts an end to the idolatry of money and places human life and dignity at the center. And he says, our civilization needs to downshift, it needs to take stock and it needs to renew itself. Or as he said to me in the interview, you know, we've produced and consumed too much. It's time to reconnect with the natural world to embrace um, to embrace the natural world as as gift rather than something to be exploited and to be used. So yeah, again, this is this is not only the roadmap of conversion, the roadmap to a new future as a result of this uh, crisis, but he concretely addresses the ones who he sees as the protagonists of this new future, who are the very people who, as it were, don't count, and yet they do count because they have what we need at this time. Yeah, just again, remarkable consistency uh, kind of across all of these these places. Thank you so much, Austin, for bringing us into some of the the thought and the heart of Pope Francis and uh, really synthesizing that really well uh, for us. I've really enjoyed the, this conversation. Thank you for all the, the writing you do and uh, that ministry. Uh, and uh, yeah, just prayers for you and your family during this time and uh, hope we can uh, reconnect sometime. It's been great to be with you, Mike, and uh, thank you. And just a word of greetings um, and prayerful solidarity with everybody listening and the great work and the great ministry that you all do in the US and Canada. Uh, from a fellow Ignatian, from an Ignatian fellow traveler, uh, um, love and prayers. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. 